Well, good morning again. Um, I, uh, older I get, I can blame it on fleeting brain cells. I forgot to mention the fact that I am married. I don't just have two random children. Um, I got four kids, but I'm married. I've been married to Jennifer for almost uh, 25 years. And um, is that right? Oh, 24? Yeah, no, we'd be doing something bigger if it was 25. Almost 24 years. Uh, two, two boys in college and then uh, our two girls, Annie and Nisa. So great to be here. Um, don't know if y'all seen the movie Gran Torino, uh, produced, I think, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Clint Eastwood. But I've seen it a couple of times. We've used it for a movie night uh, with RUF International. By the way, I'm really glad this is up high, I told Jimmy, uh, but I never quite know what to do with my hands when a pulpit is high. So if I get fidgety, just uh, try to ignore me. Um, Love the movie. I think it was Christmas break, maybe spring break. Saw it again, uh, I believe, with at least one of my boys. It's an incredible movie. Uh, can't really recommend it for some of the younger ears uh, here this morning. But in the movie, um, Walt Kowalski, who's Clint Eastwood, um, he ends up developing this really unlikely relationship with his Asian neighbors. And that's a great story. I wish I had time to like go into the story of the movie. Um, but Walt is this Korean veteran, Korean War veteran, and he's lost his wife not long ago. And he's just bitter. He's cynical about life. He's just kind of angry at the world. And uh, so he's estranged from uh, the rest of his family. And, uh, and one day this Catholic priest um, comes to Walt and Walt's former wife had asked the priest, hey, make sure you check on Walt. Like, he needs to go to confession. So he comes to Walt and says, hey, uh, I want to talk to you. Uh, I want to talk to you about something important. I want to talk to you about life and death. And so Walt responds, Clint Eastwood responds, what the expletive do you know about life and death? And the priest responds, I'd like to think I know a lot. I'm a priest. And Walt shoots back, yeah, you get up and preach about life and death, but all you know is what you learned in preschool, right out of the, uh, the rookie preacher's handbook. And uh, it's interesting, I didn't just get out of preschool, I finished seminary about 20 years ago, but I can relate to Walt, or I can relate to the priest in this sense, and I know that there are, there are many others, probably many of you here this morning, who are far more familiar with the, the things that we're going to talk about from Isaiah 55 than I am. And so, uh, you know, it's humbling to admit that, but I think that's, that's kind of where I am. I wish I had uh, my ducks in a row. I wish I was in a different place. I wish I was able to take a deeper dive into the ocean of Christian experience. Um, but the truth is, a lot of times I find myself closer to the shore, wading up to my knees, and on a good day, maybe even up to my waist, but my hope and my prayer is that Jesus will meet us. Um, he will meet each of us here this morning and call us more deeply into this experience of love with himself, and that's my confidence this morning. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 55, going to be reading verses 6 through 9. I encourage you later today, sometime this week, to read the entire chapter um, if you're like me, you got to read context. I'm not going to give a bunch of context this morning, but for me, that means I got to go start at chapter 40 and then read all the way through 66. But Isaiah 55 is an amazing chapter. Uh, verse 6, I'll start here and read through verse 9. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call up him, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray for a minute here. Father, we bow before your word, and um, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but that you have revealed yourself uh, in the glory of creation and uh, in our conscience, but especially in your word and in the person of Jesus. And so it's my prayer to use the foolishness of preaching and the preacher this morning to show us more about ourselves um, but please don't stop there. Please show us more about you and especially more about Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we didn't read the opening verses of chapter 55, but three different times, uh, if you look at the first couple verses, three different times God invites his people. Uh, the people uh, in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Jesus, he invites them to come and to find life and satisfaction uh, for their souls. And then we find these exhortations in our passage to seek the Lord, to call upon him, to turn or to return uh, to him. And so why are these exhortations there? Well, it's because you and I, just like the people, uh, you know, 700 years before Jesus and the people in Jesus' day, um, it's because you and I, we have um, this bad habit of turning away from God, right? Making ourselves the center, uh, the center of the world and turning often what are good things into ultimate things. But when we do that, we create idols. And as you all know, these idols leave us empty and restless and guilty and ashamed. And we also have uh, a bad habit of forgetting what we know. We know that salvation, if you've been in the church at all, you know that salvation is all of grace. We know it, but we forget it. And so we get busy working. We get busy working either to conceal the mess that we've made or to try to heal the mess that we are in a desperate attempt to still the chaos that we've created. We can get lost without even having to try, right? Well, lostness, this distance, this felt distance from God is a reality for each of us here this morning. It's either a reality that completely defines us, if this morning you're outside of Christ, or it's a reality that characterizes our lives, if we're Christians, far more than it should and far more than we want it to. And this is true even for believers who've walked with Jesus, sometimes for decades. And so wherever we might be this morning uh, on the spiritual spectrum, we have a strong temptation to live in the shadows hiding from God, hiding from others, and hiding even from ourselves, and hoping that somehow, somehow we can gain, or maybe regain, the smile of God. We want the smile of God. We need His smile. We can't live without His smile. It'd be like living without the sun. And scientists tell us that if the sun ever disappeared, we'd be in total darkness within nine minutes the Earth's surface temperature would be zero within a week, and within a year it'd be below 100 degrees. We'd freeze to death. And so just as we need the sun's rays in order to stay alive and to flourish, so we need the warmth and light that radiate from the heart of God because we can't live without his smile. Well, the good news of the prophet Isaiah 
and the good news of Jesus himself is that whatever might be blocking you and might be blocking me today from living in a vibrant relationship with God, God is at work to heal and to renew us and to take us deeper into his heart, deeper into the core of who he is. And that's the secret of human happiness and the source of power for living the Christian life. Knowing God, not just intellectually, not just theologically, but knowing him and our lived experience, because this is what we were created for. And since it's important, or it is important, to take in and to digest what we discover about the heart of God, even in our little passage this morning, uh, let me just ask a question. What do we learn? What do we see about God's heart, about the very center of his personality? And I think what we see very simply is that his heart beats with tender compassion for the needy. God's heart beats with tender compassion for the needy. And God's compassion is a compassion that pardons, and it's also a compassion that pursues. And so let's look first at how his compassion is one that pardons. We see this in verses 6 and 7. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you uh, by what they say or do, what is it that you most want from them? My guess is that ideally you want that hurt to be taken away. Um, but that's not always possible. And there may be some of you here who've experienced wounds in your life so deep that they will never fully be healed this side of heaven. But I bet at minimum what you want, what you would probably expect, what you hope for is that the person will at least acknowledge that what they did was wrong and acknowledge the pain, the very real pain that it caused you. And that's the one thing that we often need, or at least feel we need, in order to be able to forgive those when they sin against us. Well, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 55 are a call for each of us to do just that, to admit how we have failed God and failed to acknowledge the pain that we've caused Him. And, this, and the promise God makes is that instead of responding in anger and vengeance like we're prone to do, he will respond with compassion and forgiveness. He will pardon us. And I think repentance, I'm not sure how that word comes across to you, but it's a churchy word. It's a biblical word, right? But I think it often has a negative ring in our ears. It's not a pleasant thought sometimes, right? Sometimes people tell us, sometimes people close to us tell us we need to repent. Or we hear preachers on Sunday morning uh, telling us about the danger we're in if we don't repent. If we refuse to turn away from the evil uh, and turn to the good. And yes, it's true. This passage is calling us to repent, to turn away from sin, and to turn from God. And yes, it's true that Isaiah says, Seek the Lord, call upon him, forsake your wicked ways, and return to God. The Bible is honest. It's honest about how we've sinned and how we deserve death eternal punishment for offending an eternal God. But we can't forget what Romans 2.4 says so beautifully, that it is the kindness of God, not his sternness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so this is an invitation to you and me, to the guilty and ashamed to find rest and refuge in God our Savior. Um, this summer, when it's not been super hot in the mornings, I have loved waking up and doing the first mandatory thing besides taking a shower, and that is grabbing a cup of coffee. 
I'm sure there are others like me here. It's got to be the first thing. But then um, when it's been cooler, I've loved going out on our patio um, and just sitting out, um, looking at the backyard, the trees that kind of lie in our backyard, hearing the sound of the birds singing. Um, just, but especially my favorite thing actually is seeing the rabbits that either live in our yard or close to our yard. I haven't found their, their hole, their den, whatever rabbits live in. Um, but I see them a lot and I love them. There's a mom, there's a dad, I'm assuming there's a baby, assuming there's those three or a package. And, um, but I noticed something, I noticed a pattern that whenever I mow the grass, whenever I cut it short, the rabbits disappear. And it doesn't matter how hard I look or where I look, I can't find them. Uh, they're just nowhere to be found. And um, I am not a rabbit specialist, um, but I'm pretty sure I know why they disappear. It's because they got nowhere to hide. And it's not only rabbits that are nearby uh, in our grass, but there is in fact a hawk that circles in the skies above. And that hawk will sometimes perch on the corner of our roof and even come down in the grass, not too far from where the rabbits are. And so they know, the rabbits know, that they would be completely vulnerable. They would expose, their lives would be in danger if they were to come. And so they, they wait until the grass starts to reappear and they have cover. And you know, this is how guilt and shame often work in our lives. They lead us to run for cover. We hate being exposed. We hate being vulnerable. And there's something deep inside each of us that knows that we're not okay. There's something wrong with us. We're not the people we should be. And because of that, we owe God. We owe Him our very lives. And He could take our lives. God is a God of perfect holiness and justice. He's more than just, but He's not less than just. And so being afraid of God... Uh, condemning us for our wickedness isn't an irrational fear. For a Christian, we don't have to fear, right? He's taken away that. There's no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But it's important to remember that God is not like the hawk circling the skies above my rabbit friends. He's not like that, wanting and waiting and watching uh, just to catch you in a moment of vulnerability and guilt and shame so he can destroy you. I want you to hear the sweeping or the sweetness of God's willingness to forgive in verse 7. Verse 7 says, let the, wicked forsake, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. Through the life and death of Jesus in our place, uh, God has chosen to not count our sins against us. Um, he has humbled himself. Jesus did by entering into humanity. He's endured humiliation at the hands of his enemies for our sake. Uh, he has suffered the ultimate judgment of God and the loss of the Father's love that he had always known. And he did this so that you and I could be freely forgiven and could experience the love of God that we are meant to live for. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or not sure where you are spiritually, God's desire is to meet you exactly where you are and to, and to clothe your nakedness with the beautiful righteousness that Jesus came to, gave, came to give you. And the only way to come is needy and empty-handed, looking to him for the compassion 
that you need, the compassion that he wants to give. And if you're here and you do belong to Jesus, I'm guessing most of you do, when we find ourselves lost in sin and misery, we have to remember that it is not our repentance that gets God's attention. We don't lose his love and then get it back uh, once we turn away from sin and rededicate our lives to him. I did that a bunch growing up. Uh, that's what we naturally think in some form or fashion, even if we know better theologically. right? We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. But isn't it true that we functionally we often think that the strength of God's compassion depends upon the strength or the quality of our repentance. And that's why it's so crucial for us to remember what this passage highlights, that it is God's heart of tender compassion that pursues us way before we respond and pursue him. It's very important for us, at least for me, to remember. So we see God's tender heart of compassion for the needy and how them. But we also see it, we especially see it in how he, how he pursues the needy. And this is point two here. Um, yesterday, after we finished whitewater rafting, if you've been on the Nantahala River, you know you go over uh, Nantahala Falls. It's the last rapid on the river. Uh, it's a class three rapid, except when it floods, like it did a few years ago. And I flipped the boat on the river. Uh, that was fun. Um, but when I was a guide on the river back in the early 90s, um, my favorite thing to do um, was to go to this store, which is now kind of a restaurant and store at the end of, at the, end of the river. And uh, I was reminded of this yesterday as we were pulling the boats out of the water. But I would go to the store on my days off. I would, I would uh, grab a, a pint of ice cream and I would go sit on the rocks and watch people go over Nanahala Falls. And if they were lucky and fell out, someone would throw a rope to them. If not, they'd just keep floating down the river. But I love just being there and uh, just the, the peacefulness of nature, um, just not having to work like I did yesterday, um, you know, paddling and guiding boats, but just enjoying that scene. But I loved it especially because of the ice cream. And uh, back then I fell in love with Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. And hopefully some of you have had the pleasure of tasting that. Uh, as my 20-year-old would say, it's dope. Or as my 13-year-old uh, Nisa would say, it's bussin', right? She used that word on the way. I don't know what that means. But anyway, um, I thought it was a taste of paradise. And it was. Until recently, when I discovered something even better. So you can write this down in your sermon notes. Fish food, P-H. Fish food, Ben and Jerry's fish food. Um, it is chocolate ice cream with gooey marshmallow swirls, caramel swirls, and fudge fish. I think it's literally the best food that a human being can put in, in your mouth. So if you're on a, you know, stranded on a, on a whatever, desert island, remote island, have fish food. Uh, there's nothing better. And so what could possibly be better, right, as we think about this passage and this invitation? What could be better? then the invitation we get in, in verse 6 to seek the Lord and the promise in verse 7 of abundant pardon, this lavish forgiveness that God wants to give us, this forgiveness where we know from, from the Psalms that he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Well, the gospel tells us that the condemnation that we fear because of sin has been absorbed completely 
by Jesus in his life and especially in his death and resurrection. So what could be better than that? I'll tell you what's better. What's better is living with a felt sense of God's love. It's not just believing that his heart is full of tender compassion. It is experiencing that compassion personally in the depths of your own being. It's knowing it at a street level so that it makes a difference in how you relate to God and to others and how you think about and relate to yourself. Well, verses 6 and 7 highlight what God does, and they hint at why he does it. But it's verse, verses 8 and 9 that lead us higher to see new vistas of who God actually is, um, precisely because they take us deeper into God's very own heart. And so listen to, listen to how they follow verse 7. Verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But now hear verses 8 and 9. From my thoughts, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your, than your thoughts. Why are those verses there? Well, some scholars understand the verse to point to God's holiness, just to indicate how much higher and separate he is from, from you and I because of our sin. Uh, others seem to think that there's a reference to God's providence here, and I think that's what I've usually um, read it as, that God's ways are sometimes mysterious to us. We don't really know why he does some of the things that he does, and so his thoughts are higher, uh, our thoughts are lower. But I think Isaiah, I think something else is going on here. Isaiah is using the concept of what you could call spatial infinitude. I didn't make that up. I got it from a book, a great book, Gentle and Lowly, which I'll quote here in a little bit. Um, spatial infinitude, right? Um, to show us, he's using this concept not to show us how holy he is, which he is, not to show us how mysterious his thoughts are, which they are, but to show us the kind of tender compassion that he has. It's so incredible that there's nothing to compare it to. And it's even beyond our ability to comprehend. And so you and I need verses 8 and 9 because we instinctively, consciously or subconsciously, we dilute, we reduce, we obscure, or we discolor the heart of God. We can't believe that a love so gentle and kind could look us up and down, could know us inside and out, and still stay the course, and still feel the exact same about us. Does God really pursue us when we're at our worst? What about when he seems absent? Is he, con is he continuing to pursue us even then? And I think these are two gut-level questions that we've got to ask uh, of this text. And so, uh, first, does he really pursue us at our worst? Well, I think sometimes we get um, kind of spiritual amnesia and we slip into thinking that, that others, um, not us, others are, are pretty bad. Um, but for the most part, right, um, if we're in the church, we're Christians, we walk the straight and narrow, right? We're, we're different from others. Even though we know uh, this is not true, we often think this and, and kind of live like this. And so when these things come to mind or, or, or spring up in our hearts, what we need to do is we need to rewind the tape 
uh, we need to go back and remember that there's only one kind of person that God smiles upon and shows his love to. And it's the person that acknowledges and knows that they're in need of grace and mercy. We forget that, but we never graduate from that. We never get beyond it. Apart from the grace of God, we are all in the category of evil ones and, and, and the unrighteous. And so remembering this is a key to experiencing the heart of God. But maybe more often than not, maybe it's not pride, uh, for you, maybe it's, it's, our, it's our shame that gets in the way. Um, the feeling that we're not okay, that we're deeply flawed, even that we're disgusting at times, and certainly not worth loving the way we long to be loved. And shame, right? You know the story. It's three, shame's been present ever since the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and hid from God, tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God, what does he do? He comes to them. He, he approaches them, he, he pursues them, he, and he asks them the question, where are you? Can you imagine what that would have felt like? I think you can. If you think about your own life, sometimes God comes to us and asks, where are you? And like with them, we feel shame when we're guilty of disobeying God. But we also feel shame a lot of times when we haven't done anything wrong. Sometimes I think we need the wise counsel of, of a friend or a pastor or a counselor, maybe a spouse, to help us sort through why we're feeling shame or, or guilt and is it appropriate, is it not appropriate? But whatever the cause, right, we hate the feeling of being exposed. We hate to be vulnerable and we try with all of our might to suppress those emotions. But, though, but doing that just leads to further problems. Uh, I love the book Cry of the Soul by Dan Allender and Trumper Longman. It's been out for a while. Maybe some of you have read it. Um, here's what they write. Um, it's a book on the Psalms. Here's what they write about emotions. They say emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. But in neglecting our intense emotions, like shame, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. I have to confess, I hate that last sentence. Uh, change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. And the reason I hate it is because, maybe you can guess, that's painful. It's painful. Most of the time, I don't want to face who I really am. I don't like what I see in the mirror. And I think if you were around me long enough, you'd find plenty of things that you didn't like either. And I'm guessing that you don't like what you see either. If you're honest with yourselves and you, and you look into the mirror of God's word or people reflect back to you uh, some of who you are or, or what you've done, we don't like to be exposed and we don't want God to expose our heart and life. Uh, Brene Brown is a professor and well-known author. Um, some of you, I'm sure, know who she is. She's done a lot of research on shame. And she's noted that shame really only needs three things to survive. It needs secrecy, uh, it needs silence, and it needs judgment. And uh, we're good at cultivating all three of those things. And so 
whether it's concealing an addiction or getting defensive when someone calls you out or, or just not allowing yourself to reflect honestly and openly uh, with, with others because you're so afraid of what they may say or even what they may think about you and not verbalize it. In those moments, shame's controlling us. And when shame control us, controls us, it only leads to greater bondage and misery. And so we love to hide. We run like the rabbits in my yard. But we still long to be found, don't we? We long to be found. And it's why websites like PostSecret and Tumblr exist. I haven't been on them, but I know that they're places where people can talk freely about their struggles and their fears, their addictions, and the terrible mistakes that they've made. They can do that in a place without worrying that someone is going to find out. Their husband or wife, their parent, their boss or a neighbor. Don't we want to take our masks off? Aren't you tired of pretending? We so long to be known and also long to be loved. We want more, we want more than anonymous intimacy on the internet. That's not enough especially with strangers. We want to be known in every part of who we are, but only if we're sure that the people we are letting in won't reject us because of something that we've done in the past or maybe something that we're struggling with in the present. And that's why it's absolutely vital to remember that it's, it's important to remember the reason why God sometimes takes us through situations that bring our faults and security and insecurities to the surface. It is not because he enjoys seeing us suffer. No, he is at work in your life and he's at work in my life to rescue us, to free us from everything that would threaten our relationship with him and from everything that would finally destroy us. And so he chases after us. He does pursue us. He chases after us in the muck, in the mire of our guilt and shame. Because when he sees us in our utter neediness, what does he think? How does he feel? How does he respond? He doesn't turn the other way, but his heart moves him all the more toward us with his tender compassion. God never comes to us to shame us or condemn us, but to call us back into his arms so we can experience his love again. I mentioned the book Gentle and Lowly. Um, it's written by a pastor and author. His name is Dane Ortland, and, and here's what he says about this. Remember, when we speak of God's heart, we are speaking of the spring-loaded tilt of his affections, his natural bent, the regular flow of who he is and what he does, or what he does. That thing we've done that sent our life into meltdown, that is where God in Christ becomes more real than ever in this life and more wonderful to us in the next. Our moments of feeling utterly overwhelmed by life, these are the moments where God's heart lives. Our most haunted pockets of failure and regret are where his heart is drawn most unswervingly. I love that. And there, there may be powerful voices in your life or in your head, maybe voices um, from the past or from the, or from the present. Maybe it's your own voice. Maybe it's the voice of someone else. It could be a whisper or a scream. But those voices say things like you're a screw-up or they tell you you've got to prove yourself or that you aren't worth loving or that you'll never get it together and that there's no hope for you. 
And maybe it's what someone did or didn't do. Maybe it's someone's actual words or their tone or the facial gestures that went along with their words. I can tell you for sure that's not the voice of Jesus speaking to you in your failure and in your regret. He doesn't talk like that. If you and I want to know what his voice sounds like, then we need to listen to his own words as he describes his own heart. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, familiar verses, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what gets Jesus up out of bed in the morning? Um, what is his heart most like? He is gentle and he is accessible. As Ortland points out, he's the most approachable person who's ever existed. And we don't have to clean up ourselves, clean up our lives, and get rid of our burdens before we come to him. We just need to come as we are, exactly how you are this morning. We need to cry out to him in our need and even in our weariness, and he will bring rest to our souls, the rest that we so badly crave. Well, God is always pursuing us, uh, and even at our worst, especially at our worst. But can we really say that he is pursuing us in those times when he seems so absent from our hearts, uh, when we don't feel his tender compassion pouring into the cracks of our lives? Can we still say that? Uh, what if you know all about the tender compassion of God's heart and you've tasted it in some small but real way in your life and, um, and yet your experience of that deep love is more like the trickle of a small stream instead of uh, a rushing and mighty river. What if you're doing everything that you know to do and you're not pretending to be, fer to, to be perfect, you know and you feel your need for forgiveness and you eagerly want the love of God to wash over you and to wash over your life. But, but in seasons or for times or maybe even this morning, it just doesn't seem like he's doing anything inside of you. I definitely struggle with this. And I've struggled with this more in the last year than in a very long time. Lots of things I struggle with. Anger is one of them. And I wrestle a lot with that. And so when I feel like I'm getting triggered and, and the anger sort of coming on, I feel my need for help. I am most of the time aware that I'm getting angry. Uh, when I feel the pressure building and just feel like I want to pull my hair out or, you know, throw something, whatever. And I can read verses. I do read verses. Like, in your anger, do not sin. Or our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. So why does the anger sometimes not go away when I read the Bible or when I pray? Why is it so often the case that the thing I know I shouldn't do, I do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's what I do? Why does that happen? For example, in my marriage, I get hurt sometimes by my wife. Surprise, spouses hurt each other, right? Um, I get hurt by maybe something my wife says uh, or the way she says it. And even though I might have resolved beforehand, like, hey, I'm, I am not going to get upset. I am going to keep calm. I'm going to love. I'm going to do all the things I know to do. Um, I can still get angry and still feel like, oh, this, is, this suffering is unjust, right? I've reflected on the suffering of Jesus in the scriptures. I have 
I've, I've read about how he never became hostile or bitter, but he endured suffering, right? Didn't even open his mouth, as, as Peter tells us. I've listened to sermons and read books, journaled. I've talked with friends about the love of God and how it's right there ready to meet me. And I have experienced that at times, often through uh, the fellowship of friends who are encouraging and point me to Jesus. Um, so I know about this love, and I know that he wants to meet me in my darkest valleys of suffering and in my deepest uh, deserts of, of sin. Um, and yet, for some reason, the tender compassion of Christ for the last year has been hard for me to access. Um, and I'm not really sure why. It's had little of the sweetness or power that it has had in the past. The power to deliver me from my sin and my shame. And maybe I'm expecting something from God that he hasn't promised me right now. Maybe a certain experience of his love in the moment when I feel like I need it so much. And if I had it, like that would just... Uh, just bring me up to the surface. Maybe it'll allow me to soar and I'd be able to love my wife the way she deserves and the way that I want to. Um, it's what I deeply want. Um, but the challenge for me has been to step out in faith and obedience even when everything in me just wants to wait until I feel better. Maybe you can relate to some of that. God has felt absent a lot of the times for me in the last year and at other times in my life. One of the things that has been really helpful and one of the things that God has used for me in, uh, in, in the last year is this book um, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, Pete Scazzaro is the guy who wrote that. Pete was a pastor in Queens for uh, more than 25 years, written a bunch of books, helped a lot of people. And so he writes a lot about how God leads us into places that are painful in order to mature our faith and help us to rest more fully in his love. In one of the chapters of this book, he wrestles with what the saints through the centuries have referred to as the dark night of the soul. Maybe you've been through a dark night of the soul. Maybe you know what it is and haven't. Maybe you've never heard of it before. Uh, but the, it's the Christian experience of days or weeks or months or years when we live, this is what Pete says, when we live without a sense of God's presence and love. Um, how do we know we're in a dark night? Our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut as we pray. Darkness, helplessness, weariness, a sense of failure or defeat, barrenness, emptiness, and dryness descend upon us. The Christian disciplines that have served us up to this time, they no longer work. We can't see what God is doing, and we see little visible fruit in our lives. This is God's way of rewiring and purging our affections and passions so that we might delight in his love and enter into a richer, fuller communion with him. God wants to communicate to us the true, his true sweetness and love, and he longs that we might know his true peace and rest. Finally, he works to free us from unhealthy attachments and idolatries of the world. He longs for an intimate, passionate, love relationship for us to have with him. And so there may be some of you here this morning that feel like you are in or have been in a dark night of the soul. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're in a season that's not as acute, but you still feel at times distance from God. You feel lost, battling against sin and guilt and shame. 
And so we need to remember the words of Isaiah 55, that God's heart towards you is not cold, but warm. It is not harsh, but tender. It's not looking to crush you when you step out of line. But his heart is springing at the chance to show compassion when you and I are weak. His deepest heart is to pursue you and me no matter what, and especially in the very times when we wonder if he's there at all. So let's seek him. Let's call out to him. Jesus has a hold of you and me, and he's promised to never let go. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would meet each of us today wherever we are, whatever our struggles may be. Uh, maybe we're not even aware uh, that there are struggles today, and we give you thanks for that, for those times when life is good and life feels good. For others who are wrestling today, and maybe no one else knows what they're wrestling with, my prayer is that you would meet them, that you would encourage them, that these words from Isaiah about not just your forgiveness, but just how indescribably high and beautiful and wonderful your tender compassion is. I pray that this would not just be words or ideas for us, but would be a reality that we experience in our lives, especially in our sufferings and deep guilt and shame. We pray all this in your name. Amen.